Welcome to the Real Estate Sessions and join industry leaders as they share their stories and offer tips and advice to real estate professionals. Now your host, Bill Rissa of Chicago Title, Arizona. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Real Estate Sessions podcast. This is episode 17, and I'm very excited to have current AAR president Jim Sexton as our guest today. Now, I say current. He only has a week left, but he's still the president. So let's talk a little bit about what he's done. He has really done a lot in Arizona, uh, 35 years in the business. He has volunteered countless hours to, to better this industry for home buyers, home sellers, especially realtors. He's chaired far too many committees to mention, but he has worked closely with NAR, with AAR, with the Phoenix Association of Realtors, the Arizona Department of Real Estate, and even Arizona Regional Multiple Listing Service, now Armless. He's just really a giver, really someone who wants to make the business better. Uh, he's also a three-time Realtor of the Year. He's the only two-time Dean B. Service Memorial Award recipient. He's also received the Robert Corkill Award for Professional Standards and AAR's Vision Award. I mean, it goes on and on and on. So, Jim, I'll stop there, but thank you so much, and welcome to the Real Estate Sessions podcast. Well, thank you, Bill. Do we have time to talk about anything, or are you just going to cover what I've done? <laughs> no, I, I think I have a couple minutes left. Oh, sorry. <laughs> okay, good. Okay, so, good. Thank you. All right. So, you know, we're all online today. We can find things out about people, and I did a little digging, and I see that you know, you uh, started in the business here in Arizona in 1980, and you were a Coldwell banker agent back in 1980. Now, was that your first job, or did you do something before you got into real estate? No, actually, uh, when I graduated from college in 73, I'm an, I'm an Ohio guy. I went to work for the uh, Navy um, as a civilian in Cleveland, Ohio, and I was there for three, three and a half years, and uh, moved out to Arizona in 1976. My wife, who I, that I met in college, uh, was from Phoenix, and her father was in the construction business. And so I moved out to Phoenix to get in the construction business, uh, which is what I did in 76. Uh, and I was an office manager, basically an office manager. I was kind of the bookkeeper and the uh, biller and the scheduler and various things like that and got involved in, um, in construction in the Phoenix marketplace back, uh, back when we moved out here. What what made you get your license? What was the uh, impetus there to join, you know, to become a realtor? Well, the real estate market in '76 had uh, a lot of fix and flip opportunities, kind of deja vu as we're looking back at it now, right? Right. And so back in '76, which is pre-internet, pre anything online, uh, I was kind of frustrated waiting for the books to come out, and when I could actually get my hands on a book uh, to find out. Uh, uh, what properties are available and to go to, you know, to kind of get out there and start looking at properties um, as quickly as uh, real estate agents were looking at them. So I decided that uh, I was probably, it was probably time for me to uh, get my real estate license and get involved in investment, uh, investment real estate and, you know, go out there and look and kind of take advantage of the two things that, uh, you know, that I could do. And that was find property and then had, you know, had my uh, father-in-law uh, that was in the construction business that could, um, uh, you know, do some do some work and do some fix-ups and, uh, you know, buy property and uh, have them be have them make money in that direction. So when you first started, it was it wasn't as a a traditional buyer's agent or a listing agent. You were doing some fix and flip stuff. It had to kind of um, kind of evolve into the other side of the business, though. I'm sure. Sure. Well, 
I, I'm a numbers guy. I'm a numbers guy then. I'm a numbers guy now. And so, you know, everything was pure investment. I wasn't a real estate agent. I was kind of colorblind. I walked into a house. I saw bedrooms. I didn't see the shade of walls and stuff like that. So it was all it was all about numbers to uh, for me. And uh, also, I was looking at um, selling uh, dirt. So I was, uh, you know, dirt in order to buy houses because, again, I had a bunch of construction con contacts that uh, would make that, uh, you know, would, would make those connections. So that's that's how that's how I got started. Okay, so then you're with Coldwell Banker for a few years. You then um, decide to become a designated broker, and that was with a company. Was it Terra Marketing? Right, except you, that's a kind of a step that was left out there. Okay, let's hear and that. So I got had my real estate license, and after three years, when it was when I was able to get a broker's license, I went to get my broker's license, which happened I want to say 83, 84, somewhere in that time period, and then I had the opportunity to become a sales manager. Um, for a COLA banker office. So I was actually involved in managing an office and in, um, you know, helping agents and, and getting involved, uh, you know, with agents in, in that regard. Uh, at the time, uh, and again, we're now 83, 84, I also got involved in starting up um, a Paradise Valley MLS meeting. And so uh, a couple of pe couple of us got together and I looked at it again as the sales manager. It was an excellent opportunity for me at Cole Banker to expose listings, to get our listings on the tour. We had not only a meeting, but a tour. And so it was a perfect uh, opportunity. And once I was uh, in that capacity, then I had the opportunity to chair the meeting. Um, I think that was 84. I was the second uh, chair for the uh, for that meeting. And uh, it was a lot of fun and got me, uh, got me some exposure and uh, got involved in the Phoenix Board MLS Committee and, um, you know, kind of got identified as uh, somebody that could get some stuff done and could uh, speak in front of groups and uh, organize meetings. And uh, it was an excellent opportunity for me. So since I was managing uh, an office, you know, I got approached by some folks that were in a kind of a startup situation that was looking for a uh, designated broker. Uh, it seemed like I wasn't the perfect fit at that time for, uh, to be in a corporate type role uh, for me. And so, uh, you know, decided to uh, jump out there in an entrepreneurial way and uh, became the designated broker for uh, Terra Marketing, uh, which I was for, what, about three years? I think three and a half years. Um, and Terra was both residential and commercial. And so for those of us that were in the business in the mid-'80s, of course, we had a bit of a commercial correction uh, <laughs> yeah. during the RTC days. Mm -hmm. and some of the other issues that we had uh, here in Phoenix. And so the, the commercial division of the uh, company uh, suffered mightily, and, um, and we just weren't growing like, uh, like we needed to be. And so, um, you know, it was, time, it was time for me to get back into sales and have somebody else uh, handle the designated broker position. And fortunately for me, uh, during that time period, I had been uh, elected to the uh, Phoenix uh, board, of uh, realtors as a director, and uh, there I got the opportunity to meet John Hall, the John Hall. Yes, indeed, there is really a John Hall, and John was on the board at the time as well. And so, um, and uh, so uh, uh, at Terra Marketing, I was still looking for a designated broker position, and I knew there was probably about uh, four or five people in town that would have a organization or a company that would fit me and what I was looking for. 
and I made those calls and John was obviously one of the calls. At the time he didn't have an opportunity but a couple months later gave me a call back and uh, hired me in September of uh, 89 and uh, came to work at uh, 11 to 11 North Tatum which is where I'm sitting right now during this uh, conversation. I've been here in the same basic location at one end of uh, the second floor or the other uh, since 1989. That's the beginning of your relationship. Did you come on as a, as a designated broker? Is that what he needed at the time, or were you there in a different role? Okay. Yes. So no, 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 I came on as a designated broker. Okay. And then you eventually acquired John Hall and Associates, correct? Sure. John retired in um, '95. Uh, we started talking about uh, what he wanted to do and what I wanted to do, and it was a, uh, you know, it was a good match. We got together, um, worked out some numbers, and uh, solved what he wanted to do, and certainly solved what I wanted to do. I, I have to ask this question. You're the first, I think, designated broker that I've had on, especially with your tenure. I mean, you've, you've 30 years, you've had your license as a, as a DB. That, that role has to have evolved over the years, or, or maybe it hasn't. Well, for me, it has because I've been broker-owner as well as just broker. So I've been, I've been an employee as a designated broker as well as the responsible party, and with John Hall, obviously, I was both. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's different, you know, and, and obviously the market is different. So, I mean, I can remember way back when, um, you know, I'm in a, a, in a meeting at you know, either the Phoenix uh, board or the Arizona Association, I could sit around the table and say, yeah, I've never been sued before. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a lot of years ago yeah. uh, as well. And so, you know, as a designated broker, especially when you get up to, um, you know, uh, I think at John Hall, we were probably, I think we peaked about 900 or just under 1,000. And now at um, Realty One, we're at uh, about 2,200 wow, um, okay. here in the Valley. So um, can't can't say that anymore. Certainly say we keep our uh, we we keep track of what of what we're doing. We have a you know risk management policies to minimize uh, the exposure. You know best practices, education, and uh, fortunately for me, you know I've got six uh, associate brokers that uh, take care of me at our six other Phoenix locations. Let's talk about that quickly. You're, a few years ago, uh, you joined forces with Realty One Group. Was was that a tough decision? I mean, you'd been you'd been your own guy for a while. Um, yes, it was a tough decision, but it was a necessary decision. And I say that because, um, you know, as you mentioned, as I started with the split shop and Terra Marketing was a split shop, and then I went to a hundred percent shop at John Hall. And John Hall was noted at the time as a uh, less expensive. Um, option, monthly option in the marketplace. And all of a sudden, as we got into the um, real estate uh, correction, crash, whatever you want to call it, of um, 7, 8, 9, and 10, uh, my monthly fee became expensive. And so my business model broke. And some could say that it broke overnight or it broke gradually over time. And so I was watching, you know, my peak of 900 erode to, you know, 800 to 700. And at the time that we were that I was uh, merging uh, with Realty One, we were at about 650 or something in that neighborhood. So I needed to do something just because the, uh, the uh, my fees at John Hall were too high, and uh, Realty One certainly was a was an excellent fit, and we were able to convert. Um, uh, most agents came over. The major block of agents that didn't come over were 
property managers and, and Realty One doesn't do uh, property management. So about, um, about 80 or 90 of uh, the John Hall property managers needed to find a new home uh, as, we, as we merged. So, and obviously now with 2,200 agents, things are great. <laughs> obviously a great decision. <laughs> so. You know, and the company at the time, Realty One was about um, about the same size as uh, John Hall. And so we, as we merged, we were at about 1,000. So, and this was August of 11. And so we're looking at, you know, four years later, we're, we've doubled again. Um, it's, it's easy to double when you're 50 or 60 or 100. It's not so easy to double when you have 1,000. To, to come up with that critical mass, but since uh, since the merger, we've uh, uh, changed a couple locations and added a couple of offices, and again, we're up to um, you know seven at this point. But one one two one one is not going anywhere, right? Uh, nope. This was a John <laughs> Hall lease that uh, I had in place that had just been uh, renewed, and um, so uh, you know, so we not only had some years left on this. Uh, location, but uh, as we did some of our TIs to make it look like a regular Realty One office, uh, you know, we extended uh, for a little bit more uh, here as well. So, awesome. yeah, we'll be here for a bit. Well, I want to talk to you about your involvement in the industry. You really take volunteerism to another level, and much like some of the other guests on the podcast, you know, Holly and Evan come straight to my mind when I think about that. But your involvement locally at the state level, national, it's really impressive. And and it's not just because you like working. I mean, why is this important to you? And, and really, maybe why is it important to realtors in general? Well, uh, to me, I think it's, it's something that you have as well, Bill. And that is, um, I get so much more out of volunteering and meeting with uh, movers and shakers and like-minded uh, either realtors or affiliates you know in the industry and just getting things done it gives me the opportunity to stay on top of what's uh, going on and also you know based on the meeting or the committee that I'm in or on you know give me a voice in in what's what's happening so I mean I see uh, various things it's kind of why I got back involved with armless here this year uh, just because um, there's been a lot of changes uh, that have happened at Armless. I, I left Armless about I think five years ago, and there's been a lot, including a new CEO, that has changed at Armless in a new direction. And um, I think there's new opportunities there that Armless presents, uh, that MLS presents, and I just wanted to get back in, involved in uh, some of those discussions. So I think it's just a it's just a function of um, you know. Um, enjoying it and learning from it and and it, it helps me stay involved I mean it's so difficult uh, to stay involved otherwise if I w if I wasn't doing if I wasn't doing these committees I'd be in my office all the time just talking to my agents and unless I get out to you know go to a class or or go to a statewide function I, you know I, I'd have no idea what's going you know what's going on now I might have some idea what's going on, but I wouldn't be as <laughs> yeah. involved as I, right. as I am now. Right. So when this episode airs, uh, your term as president will be nearly over. You'll be in your final week. And so give us a takeaway or two from the experience. What did what what was it like? Well, you said that you know you've had Holly uh, Mayberry on, and you know the reason I got involved was because of Holly. Um, and it was right about I want to say, let's see, first of the year, so it was probably the first of twelve. Well, maybe February of 12 when she called and asked if I would um, step in uh, and replace um, a volunteer who had passed away. 
that was in the line of um, officer line uh, for AAR. And um, uh, obviously, since I was now an employee again, I had to check with uh, powers to be at Realty One and find out if that's something that uh, worked for them because it was something that I was interested in. And um, sure enough, it worked there. So um, I jumped in and was the treasurer when Holly was president, uh, first vice president when Sue Fluke was uh, president uh, last year when Evan was president. Of course, I was president-elect. And so the takeaway, and I've told this to Holly and to a number of people um, recently, is that um, it's been uh, it's been a learning another a learning experience uh, and a growth opportunity. At the time, you know, some people look at uh, serving or being a president or being an officer or whatnot as just a time obligation, and um, and yet uh, to me, I found out it was a real growth opportunity. The relationships that um, I was able to form, develop, and form, um, not just uh, you know, locally, not just within the state, not just down at AAR, but you know, within our region, uh, fellow presidents of of the uh, Region 11 states: uh, Utah, Colorado, Nevada, uh, Wyoming, New Mexico. I'm probably forgetting one, but you know, it, it's just kind of cool to um, be in the same class and have the opportunity to do that. Uh, of course, for me, probably a couple of the highlights or the takeaways were when Paula Servin and I along with uh, Craig Sanford and Nicole Blaslavic, uh, Government Affairs Director for AAR. Got to uh, hear the President of the United States down at Central High when he was in town in uh, January uh, talking about lowering the FHA premiums. You know, you kind of watch some of that stuff on TV and it's the, it's the you know, it's, a, it's, it's looking through a box. When you're actually in the audience and you see all the stuff that goes on, not just for you as an individual to get into the audience, but then all the Secret Service folks scurrying around and all the activity that happens once the president comes into the uh, comes into the facility, you know it's pretty impressive and it's you know it makes you it certainly makes you proud, you know, to be an American and to see all that uh, you know all that goes on there, regardless of your political affiliation. You know, I think that was uh, pretty cool. We then that same day, uh, Paul and I, uh, you know, had the opportunity to have lunch with um, uh, Chris Polychron. And Chris, of course, is uh, NAR's uh, president this year. And he was there for the, you know, for the program as well. And he was backstage and actually got to talk to, um, you know, the president um, as well. And so, you know, that was uh, pretty cool. And it formed a relationship that continued for the year. And in fact, Chris was in town again um, last month in October and actually installed our 2016 president, Paula Servan. And again, you know, we had just such great hands-on opportunity just to talk to Chris. He's from Arkansas, by the way, and get, um, you know, get his perspective of what's happening with national, at national, what are some of the uh, issues that national is um, facing. And of course, from my perspective, any national person I can run into, I'm going to ask what can NAR do about the CFPB, about disclosures, and about you know some some points of clarification there? So again, it goes back to some of the relationships and some of the uh, people that I met uh, in this um, in this role, and uh, you know things that I'll be able to take away for you know for as long as I've uh, as long as I stay active. You you brought up Trid first, so we're going to talk about it. <laughs> so sure. I've um, I've personally done ninety. TRID presentations since April, and you've probably did more than you wanted to, let's put it that way. 
So yeah, no, I didn't do 90. I, <laughs> I did maybe a dozen or, or so. So when this episode publishes, we'll be about seven weeks into Tridland. So what are your thoughts? Sure. How are you feeling about it now? You know, we're recording this on the fourth, so we're we're one month in. How are you feeling? I think that it's funny that uh, you know when my son Phil was out um, doing uh, programs and talking to various people and getting feedback from uh, from uh, folks, he came up with the term that uh, some folks in the industry thought that this was going to be a Y2K experience. In other words, much ado about nothing. Uh, from a real estate agent's perspective, uh, AAR was certainly pre prepared, not just for October 3rd, but August 1st, um, and the forms were ready, and the training was in place, and everybody was was ready to go. You know, the concern was um, the concern was uh, with mortgage and um, title, and whether they were be they were ready to go. But you know, we have a we have a uh, mortgage company here in um, you know within the office. And I went in. I went in. I was doing a presentation. I went in to talk to them. Um, I want to say October 20th or something like that. I said, hey, so have you guys gotten close to closing any trid deals yet? And they said, yeah, we closed our first one in 11 days. And um, asked them last Friday. And so now, before the end of October, so we're within that magic 30-day time period. And their number was already up into the you know high 20s that they had closed during the first um, the first uh, 26 days or something like that. So I think that um, the fear and the concerns about you know 45 day closing, 60 day closing, 75 day closings was a bit overstated. Um, I think uh, lenders can get can get deals closed. Buyers obviously have to be motivated. Buyers have to uh, keep the process moving. Buyers have to be responsive, but by all means, if um, lenders are responsive and if lenders communicate and if lenders talk to title and get the numbers accurately um, and stay in touch with the realtors and keep the uh, keep the parties updated, um, I think we're going to see we'll be back to 30-day closings in in Arizona uh, very quickly. Initially, I thought it wouldn't happen until the first of the year, but I think that. You know, and maybe and maybe that's still accurate, uh, just because of the holidays and coming up with you know on, with Thanksgiving and the Christmas delays. Yeah, I agree with you completely. I've, I've always been very Pollyannish on Trid. You know, I, I, it was a major shift in in the way lenders processed at the end of the transaction. But you know, it's what they do. They figure these things out. Title will adapt as well. And I'm with you. By the you know, I was saying spring. But I'll push it back to the first year with you that we're really almost back to business as normal. So that's good. It's good for everybody. Yeah. And good. I think the only thing that will set us back is obviously if the CFPB comes out with their first enforcement action and um, throws the hammer down on some obscure rule um, or it's obscure interpretation of one of the rules. And, you know, and we'll see, you know, and we'll see if that happens. I don't expect it to. You know, I am. It was encouraging that, you know, they're looking at, you know, sensitively enforcing um, the the time periods and stuff and during the first uh, 60 days. And so, um, you know, we'll see. I think I think people are getting their legs under them and we'll be okay here. We'll, we'll be back to timing as, as normal coming up here. So let me ask you a couple of questions that um, I'm, I'm always intrigued by. Um, as a designated broker in charge of a lot of people, as you mentioned, you've been part of lawsuits in the past. <laughs> You see lots of mistakes that agents make. So 
can you give us a couple of your top, let's call them pet peeves, when it comes to these sorts of things? There's got to be a couple that just, just keep coming back and back no matter how much you talk about it. Um, the one that probably is the most frustrating, not just for me, but for the agent, is when the agent um, takes an action that, um, you know, and, and ends up with a no, no good deed goes unpunished. Um, doing somebody a favor and then the favor doesn't work out and then all of a sudden the uh, memory of the client is convenient and forgets that I said to do this or I said to do that or, or whatever. And those are the parts that, you know, are tough to defend because, you know, there's not sufficient documentation. There's not, you know, um, there's not a lot of, uh, uh, of proof that the seller uh, was informed and the seller is uh, overblowing uh, or trying to take advantage. You know, they find an agent mistake and they think they they think they found a winning lottery ticket. That's the part that's the most frustrating. Um, otherwise, you know, it, it it's going to be the odd. You know, the the recurring thing is um, square footage, roof leak, you know, size of the lot or property lines. Those things are are pretty constant. Um, and yet, when you take a look at the uh, number of transactions that um, that we have in Arizona and the number of lawsuits that are filed. I mean, if you go way back, if you were my age, Bill, you go way back, um, we, you know, we had uh, an ivory soap commercial and they were so proud that they were 99.9% .9 pure. I remember that. Right? <laughs> yep. And when you look at, when you look at uh, real estate transactions, you know, that's about the percentage of deals that we have that don't result in lawsuits. And so it's only a very, very, very small percentage that, you know, creates an issue. I know when I was doing, you know, four and five and 8,000 um, deals a year, you know, at John Hall, you know, I was tracking five or six lawsuits a year. Again, you do the math and that's mathematically speaking, that's not many. And no. even of those, I mean, that's, those are just what's filed. That doesn't mean that we're guilty or that we're, you know, there's huge payouts. And so, um, you know, so for the most part, um, agents with proper risk management uh, tools and techniques and procedures in place, you know, you can uh, minimize your risk and, um, you know, have a have have agents not, you know, be able to have agents and designated brokers be able to sleep at night. Great. Let me let me switch gears on you here for a second. We're kind of wrapping this up. I got a couple more questions. We've um, we've seen online lead generation explode from, I'm going to call it its humble beginnings, right around 2000 when I joined the industry, then he was just really starting to pick up. And how do you sort out this, this, this online lead gen thing, which is all over the place, from good old sphere of influence referral-based strategies? Can an agent be excellent at both, or should they focus on one or the other? Is there some happy medium? What's your take on this? We'll call it search versus sphere. You know, when I when I started in the business in '80, and started going to national uh, meetings and conventions, and starting to subscribing to uh, NAR publications, you know, when they would come out and say, "Where where's the business coming from?" The number when I started was um, 70, 70 to 75 percent was going to be past clients, repeat business, sphere of influence, and the number today is still very close to that. The percentage is still very close, at least the last number that I saw. And maybe it's as low as two out of three. So the sphere of influence and the and the staying in touch uh, with past clients and the you know six degrees of separation and that net, those networking opportunities are still alive and well in our industry. Not saying that people aren't you know going online and doing their initial research, uh, but when the rubber meets the road, they're going to ask their parents, their friends, their neighbors, 
who did you use to do your transaction and were you happy and who's the best real estate agent that you know and I think that that's still uh, it, it, that's still important and, and but I but that's me talking and that's me you know 35 years in the business talking if you talk to my son who obviously you know very well yep. he's a, he, he generates he generates uh, leads off the internet and that and that appeals to a different demographic and it also appeals to the younger generation. And I certainly see that that's as, you know, as the uh, X's and Y's are, you know, get in, and the millennials get into the marketplace, I certainly see that um, parts of that could switch. But if millennials are getting their down payments from mom and dad, mom and dad are going to want to make sure you're using somebody that they know, right? I, I mean, that's, that's, how I, that's how I look at that. So I think there, you know, there's a place for both. It depends on the money that you have to invest if you're going to go into uh, lead gen uh, versus you know the prospecting activities uh, uh, and opportunities that are out there if you're a networker. Well, Jim, I like I said, I've kept you for over half an hour, so let me give you my last question. I've given the previous 16 guests on the podcast, and that is, what one piece of advice would you give to a new agent or even an agent struggling to reach their goals? What's what's one thing that's just critical in your mind? Well, I think you just hit it right there with goals. And that is have goals, have a business plan. My first, um, my first uh, opportunity or foray into, you know, into setting goals was early on in in, in real estate. And um, you know, I did start with Cobalt Banker, and um, I was, uh, and my goal was to be the top lister in the office. And um, you know, I started in January, and so coming around to October uh, time period, October November time period. You know, sure enough, there I was, number number one in the office. You know, I was doing, I don't know, five or six um, listings a month or something, and I was, you know, I was I was poised to be the top lister in the um, in the office. And then all of a sudden, this um, this lady lists a subdivision on top of me, 60, <laughs> 66, 66 uh, listings that she got credit for. And so all of a sudden, I met, you know, I kind of met my goal volume-wise or number-wise. But uh, you know, I came in second place to um, to uh, uh, Carol Ehrman at the time. Of course, she's now Carol Sexton. Ah. <laughs> and okay. So I learned that setting goal—you know—you can have goals and have and, who is obviously my wife. Right. And um, uh, learned a lot about goal setting from her as well. So even though you know, so even though my initial uh, setup as far as goals were concerned you know, involved a number, you know, I learned that I can only control my own numbers. I couldn't control being number one because um, I don't know how she got. Oh, by the way, I did help her sell that, uh, sell the subdivision, by the way, we, as we sat it, you know, as we sat at ourselves as the new homes uh, were built and, um, you know, put, put onto the market. So uh, it did have a happy ending, even though, uh, you know, I was, uh, I wanted to know how she got that. That was... <laughs> That was a last second uh, pulling a rabbit out of a hat. So yeah, it's uh, actually a pretty it's a pretty funny story, but that is. Uh, it is a true story. Well, Jim, thank you so much for taking time. In fact, I'm gonna put you on the spot and say I'm gonna need to talk to you again. You know, go a few months down the road, maybe it's next spring, because there's lots of stuff I'd like to ask you that we didn't have time to touch today. So can I get your uh, approval on that? Uh, on the podcast? Not a problem. Love to. Love to, Bill. It's pretty painless. I can do this. All right. Give me the questions and let me talk. I, I, like the, I like the concept. Yeah, it's all it is. It's pretty simple. I'm not trying to reinvent anything. So it's just a conversation. And, and once again, thank you so much for being here. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again soon. 
You bet. Happy holidays to everybody. And thanks to everybody again for listening to the Real Estate Sessions podcast. Remember, we publish every Tuesday morning with an industry leader, either locally or nationally. And we really appreciate you telling your friends about the podcast. The numbers keep going up on the downloads. It's very exciting. I'm having a blast doing this, and I can see myself doing this for quite a while just because there are so many people we have to, we have to talk to still. So we will see you next time. Thanks. Bye. You've been listening to The Real Estate Sessions with Bill Rissa of Chicago Title, Arizona. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and tell your friends about The Real Estate Sessions as new episodes are published weekly.